looking at Matthew chapter 26. And when you get there, let me remind you that Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem after the Last Supper. They head out of the city across the Kidron Valley and they head toward the Mount of Olives where Jesus gives a very disturbing prediction. And we're going to look at this passage and we're going to divide it into three sections based on geography or scenes actually. Scene number one uh, takes place on the way to Gethsemane. We're going to look at that. Then scene number two takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then you're going to see Jesus praying at that time. And then the last scene takes place on the edge of the garden when Jesus is arrested. So let's look at the scriptures dealing with the events on the way to Gethsemane. We are in Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, that would be the eleven who are with him, Judas having gone out already to betray Jesus. All of you will be made to stumble because of me uh, this night. Now this is not their intention. There's no one of the eleven that are planning on stumbling, uh, which is a very interesting word. The word stumble there is uh, from the Greek word scandalon. You've heard that before probably. But it means that uh, this describes the nature of the stumble. You are going to be scandalized. None of them have an intention of being scandalized, but they're going to feel scandalized. And we have the reason for the scandal. You're going to be made to stumble or scandalized because of me. Uh, it's going to be because of their association with Jesus that they are going to, in a sense, be scandalized. It's guilt by association. Uh, and as a result of what's happening this night, notice it's this night, that's the timing of the event. They are, they will not want to be associated with Jesus. Okay? And we're going to see how all that happens. Notice that the inevitability of the event. He says in the end of verse 31, because it's written, this is going to happen, and that's why you're going to be made to stumble, because it is written, meaning beforehand in the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd, which in this case would refer to Jesus, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is all part of God's plan. It reveals the hearts of the disciples, that when the going gets tough, they get going. And uh, they feel that Jesus is not the Messiah. You're going to see that. That he has failed them. He is not going to set up the kingdom of God on earth. And they're going to feel, well, this is not worth it. And they're just going to scatter. But this is all God's doing. Because this is something that was predicted in Old Testament times in the book of Jeremiah chapter 13. So that's what Jesus says. Now, that's the prediction of them scattering. The prediction of uh, uh, that they're going to abandon him. But then Jesus offers a word of hope in verse 32. But, he says, after I have been raised, notice in verse 31, he's going to be stricken. God's going to strike him. And then in verse 32, after I've been raised, and God's going to raise him, I will go before you 
to Galilee. So, he says, yes, what happens to me is going to be all in God's plan, but God has something else in store. There's a hope in this message. He's going to raise me, and guess what? I'm going to go to Galilee, and I'm going to get there before you do, and uh, you will once again become my followers. Because if he goes first, they're following behind. Now, we have Peter's, of course, Peter's impulsive response, which we would expect from Peter. Verse 33, Peter answered and said unto him, I love this, even if all are made to stumble because of you, look at that, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Now, uh, when you look at this, what's Peter doing? First of all, he's contradicting Jesus. He's also contradicting the scriptures. Because this is all part of God's plan. And uh, the worst thing is, is he denigrates his colleagues. I don't would you like that? I wouldn't like it in the faculty meeting at the college if somebody said, Well, even if all these other professors you can paddle on me, I mean that's arrogance, isn't it? And uh, this is not making for good uh, Personal, interpersonal relationship between Peter and the apostles. I'm certain of that. It's an arrogant statement. It's a pride statement. It's braggadocious. It's Peter. Pomposity. So now we have Jesus' response in verse 34. He said to him, that's Peter, well, let me tell you what I know. See? Notice, truly, truly, or some translations say, assuredly. See, in verse 33, Peter tells us what he knows. I'll guarantee I'm not going to. Now Jesus says, well, let me tell you what I know. Okay? <laughs> Can you imagine this in front of all the apostles as they're walking along? Assuredly, I say to you, verse 34, that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, not only will you abandon me like the other apostles, you'll do one better. You'll deny me, and guess what? You'll deny me three times. And so that's what I know, Peter. Now, and he says it's going to happen before the dawn, before the rising of the sun, before dawn comes up. You're going to do this three times. Now remember, uh, they just had the Last Supper. It's probably lasted three or four hours, probably went from six to about nine or ten. They're walking out to the Mount of Olives about ten to eleven. He said, you know, within the next seven or eight hours, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to be worse than the... You think you're great? You're going to be worse than anybody. Now, I think if I were Peter, I would have just kept my mouth shut. But knowing Peter, he can't do that. So Peter has his retort in verse 35. He says, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Uh, He doesn't leave well enough alone. He always has to get in the last word. He says, I will not deny you. Now, we all know people like Peter. They have to get in the last word. My wife claims I'm like that. <laughs> That's not true. I'm not. <laughs> and uh, usually these people are very talented. You know, they're outgoing. They're, you know, aggressive. And they do great things. Uh, but oftentimes they speak before they think. And so that's what he does. He said, even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. And then finally, the others, the other ten, 
finally can take it no longer. And look what they say at the end of verse 35. And so, so said all the other disciples. Oh, well, you can count on us too. You know. So uh, they're not going to let Peter just get the last word. And they said, well, you can count on us too. So that's scene number one, on the way to the garden. Okay? Jesus has this disturbing prediction. Now we come to scene two, the garden of Gethsemane itself. Now look at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, that would be the 11, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. So what he does is he takes the disciples and he says, look, sit here, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which of course would have been James and John. Now I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, the one person I wouldn't have taken with me would have been Peter. But he takes Peter with him, and I think he does it for a reason, which we will see. And uh, so he and Peter and John and James, they go in a little bit further, and the other eight are left sort of on the edge of the garden at Gethsemane. And then verse 37 says, at the end of verse 37, it says, and he began, now he hasn't prayed yet, it says he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. This describes Jesus' state of mind. He's very vulnerable at this time. He knows he's going to die. Look, we all know we're going to die. Don't dwell on that too long, because that'll get you depressed, you know. And uh, and you know what that's like. It depresses people around you. And Jesus is thinking about his death, and he just gets overwhelmed, because this is what he's going to pray about. He gets overwhelmed with emotion, and he's anguished, he's burdened as he contemplates death. Uh, here we see just Jesus operating fully as a human being, and he experiences all the emotions and the depression and the darkness that we experience in our own lives. And then verse 38 goes on. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And he describes how sorrowful he is, even to death. Now, if you've ever had a panic attack, you know what he's describing here. You have a panic attack, you can't breathe. And your heart starts racing, and you think you're going to die. And he is in such a state of mind that he is facing this it feels like he's going to die. This is his own self-description. Notice he's describing himself this way. And then he goes on and he says, at the end of verse 37, 8, he says, stay here. So he's gone in a little bit further, and he says, now I want you three to stay here and watch with me. Okay. So we have eight on the outskirts of the garden, three a little bit further in. He requests they stay there, and he is going to go on a little bit further and he's going to pray. He just asked them to stay awake. Stay with me. Now that's what you're supposed to do. When a friend's in distress, what do you do? You're supposed to be there. Uh, just stay awake. You know, <laughs> Don't just say anything. Just uh, you know, pray for him. Stay there. That's what you need to do with a friend. And he says, just watch with me. Then look at verse 39. He went a little further. So he goes in even further. So you have eight on the outskirts, three at another point, and then Jesus goes in even a little bit further, and he falls on his face. He absolutely collapses. That's not the scene you normally 
uh, picture in your mind is the Garden of Gethsemane. All the paintings are Jesus kneeling down at a rock with his hands like this. He has totally collapsed. He's so weak and so distressed, uh, so burdened. He falls flat on his face on the ground. And then it goes on to say in verse 40, or verse, into verse 38, uh, whatever it is, verse 40. Went a little further, 39. He fell on his face and he prayed, and here's what he said Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, this is what I'm going to call prayer number one. Okay, he's going to pray three times. This is prayer number one, and we discover something about the prayer. First of all, he addresses God in verse 39 as my Father. Uh, this is very unique to Jesus. The Aramaic word is the word Abba. Jews never used Abba to describe Father. It speaks of an intimate relationship. So Jesus has this intimate relationship with God, and it's a unique relationship. Look at the content of that prayer in verse 39. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. First of all, notice he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, it's possible in the sense that with God, all things are possible, right? So, God has the ability to not allow this to happen, okay? Because nothing's impossible with God. But what the verse says in verse 39 is, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So, while all things are possible with God, not all things are God's will. So, it's right there. While all things are possible with God, not all things are are God's will. That doesn't stop Jesus from praying. Because every detail of God's will is not being made known to Him. And we don't know what God's will is for every area of our lives either. So we ask God to heal somebody. We ask God to do this. We know it's possible with God. Sometimes God gives the assurance that He's going to do it. And man, a miracle happens. But other times... We ask God to do something, and we know it's possible, but we don't know if it's His will. But we pray anyway, and we ask Him, always understanding that God has a will sometimes that is not known to us. And that means, when you see this, that God doesn't answer Jesus' prayer the way Jesus prefers. You know? And uh, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. And that's just the truth of the matter. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. I hate that. And I don't know why he doesn't answer my prayers. But I know this, when we can't understand his mind, as Owens Hawkins has said many times, when you can't understand his mind, you need to trust his heart. Because God is a God of love, and God is totally good, and he's only going to do what is best. So when I don't understand his mind, I have to trust his heart. And that deals with the future, because the things I'm praying for are future, aren't they? Here's what I'm asking God to do, and this is the preferred future. Jesus is asking God that he doesn't have to die. 
But is there any other way around it? But he's going to die. Okay? But he's going to die because God has a better plan than Jesus. He's got a better plan than you many times when you pray. And God's plan is to raise him from the dead. Which is unbelievable when you think of it. Because when Rome puts him to death, they thought they defeated him. But when he's raised from the dead, he's one. Jesus is one. Never to die again. And that is the whole basis for our redemption. So, when we ask God to do something, whether it's heal a person or do this or take care of that, and we know it's possible and he doesn't do it, guess what? He has a future that's preferred over ours. And we may not see it. We may not see it. I might ask God to do something and he doesn't do it, but he has a reason for not doing it and it's a better future. And I may die and not see the future. You know that? In other words, this future plan, based on not answering my prayer right now, is even better than I can anticipate. So I remember reading about Hudson Taylor, who prayed for his son to come to Christ, and his son never came to Christ. And he couldn't understand it. He knew God's will. He thought this was God's will. Bring my son to Christ. Save him. He didn't do it. And Hudson Taylor died. And they were at the cemetery and they were laying his, lowering his casket. And when they were lowering his casket, his son came and fell on the casket. And he said, oh dad, I accept your Jesus. Hudson Taylor never saw that. And revival broke out because the guy accepted Christ then. Influenced a lot of other people around him. That was a better plan than Hudson Taylor's plan. So we just don't understand God's mind sometimes, but we have to trust Him. And then Jesus came to the disciples in verse 40. Look what happens. And He found them sleeping. He said, watch, stay awake, and they are sleeping. Every one of them. That's the three, this inner court. Found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, now, why doesn't he say this to James and John? Because Peter's the big mouth. He said, you can count on me, do or die. He said, I couldn't even count on you to watch for one hour. Could you not watch with me for one hour? Which is interesting because it tells us how long Jesus prayed. Prayed for an hour. Which is sort of interesting. So guess what he does? He gives them a warning. He says, verse 41, watch and pray. Bless. Now he's still talking to Peter. Right? Still talking to Peter. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing. I know you said you're willing to die for me, you know. But the flesh is weak. I know you have good intentions. But intentions are not enough. So he tells him to stay awake. And now we come to prayer number 2 in verse 42. And again the second time he went away. So now Jesus goes back inside a little bit further. And he prayed and he said, Oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. 
So he prays that prayer, basically the same prayer as it may be progressing a little bit, but basically the same prayer. He's sort of resolving that God's will be done, still asking him to pass death if it's possible. And he came a second time, and he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. Now you would think after the warning, after being embarrassed, at least Peter, after being embarrassed, would have done everything in his power to stay awake. But he doesn't, and neither do the other two. So then we have prayer number three, verse 44. So he left them and he went away again. He goes back deeper into the olive trees. And he prayed a third time, saying the same words. Now just assume that each one is an hour left. That'd be about three hours of prayer. Which is very unusual. But this is an unusual circumstance. Verse 45 says, Then he came to his disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Failure number three. Now how many times is Peter going to deny him? Three. He fails in the garden three times. Maybe this is sort of a precursor to get Peter prepared. If you can do this three times, you're going to deny me three times. I don't know. But he says, are you still sleeping? In verse 45. He says, behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. I don't like that translation. You know what it means? Wake up! See? Does that make better sense? Look. Wake up! <laughs> Let's get going here. The betrayer is at hand. Now notice you'll see at hand in there twice. In verse 45, behold, the hour is at hand. That's meaning Jesus' hour of dying is at hand. Being rested is at hand. And then... In verse 46, he says, My betrayer is at hand. Both the phrase at hand simply means is near. So he says, Look, let's get up. They're coming after me, and my betrayer, who we know is Judas, is leading the way. So that's scene number two. That's the prayer scene in the garden. Now we come to scene number three, which is the arrest. Okay, look at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, and I like the way the New King James says, Behold, because this is Matthew telling the story. He's telling a story to people who are going to read this 50 years later. He said, And while he was still speaking, Look! Judas! Behold, Judas! One of the twelve, with a great multitude, probably hundreds, with swords and clubs. Roman soldiers were the ones that carried these swords, and clubs were probably carried by the temple priest. And they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So here is a posse coming to arrest Jesus. Now his betrayer had given them, that's the posse, a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now that kiss is nothing out of the ordinary. That's the normal way that you would greet a rabbi. So it doesn't look like anything that's strange. It would be like me going into a room and meeting somebody 
and shaking their hand. That's just the normal way that people greeted their rabbi in those days. So it doesn't, the, you know, the other apostles, the other 11 apostles don't see this as strange. Here's Judas coming back, comes up and says, oh, rabbi, gives him a kiss on each side like they do in the Middle East. But it's a sign to the posse that that's the one that they're to arrest. You say, well, what, didn't they know Jesus? Well, it was dark. We're not on the street lights here, you know, in the... <laughs> <laughs> on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is pretty dark there, these thick olive trees. And uh, don't assume that the temple guards and the Roman soldiers knew Jesus. You know, no, it wasn't like, you know, somebody that everybody knew. So he says, well, the guy I'll walk up to and kiss, that'll be the rabbi. That's the one that you're supposed to arrest. So it is a sign to the posse. Okay? And then verse 50 goes on to say, But Jesus said to him, Friend. Judas said, Rabbi. But Jesus said to him, Friend. Why have you come? What are you here for? Probably Judas had the crowd, his posse, maybe just standing right on the outside, maybe behind a clump of trees, ready to jump on Jesus. And maybe it's just Judas and Jesus and the others right there. Jesus says, why have you come? Then they came. See, that's the posse hanging behind a bush of a tree and laid hands on Jesus and took him. That's the arrest. Now, it's interesting that Jesus calls him his friend. In the other stories, the other parables in Matthew... The young man who buried his talents, the master comes back and calls him friend, even though the guy disobeys his master. In the story of the girls with the wedding garments but no oil, when they come to the door, the guy opens it, calls them friend. And now Jesus calls the one who betrays him friend. Notice that. Judas calls him rabbi, he calls him friend, and he says, Judas, why have you come? And I bet you in that split second, I mean, he just felt guilty. Don't you, Judas? He's been found out. And then before he can even answer, they come and they arrest Jesus. Verse 51 says, And suddenly one of them, who was with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. We know from another gospel, that's Peter. Probably Peter wants to make good his uh, promise. You know, I'll, I'll stand with you. You just cost me my life. And uh, he cuts this guy's ears off. And uh, we know from the other gospel that Jesus heals him. And then Jesus speaks to Peter. And he said to him, to Peter, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So this is a rebuke. And also it's an axiom, meaning it's a truism. Uh, the way to solve a problem is not through violence. If you live violently, you will end up dying violence. Violence, violently. Violence only leads to violence. Violence breeds violence. That's not the way to God's kingdom. It's not by overthrowing the Roman government. It's not fighting back. It's not using force. It's not using violence. 
This is not what Jesus wants from Peter. What he wanted from Peter was for Peter to stay awake and pray for him. Peter can't do that, but he can pull out a sword. See, that's rambunctious Peter again. So what you have in verse 53, he said, Or do you, and he's still talking to Peter. This is a further rebuke. Or do you not think that I can... In other words, put away your sword. Don't you think I can pray to my Father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, what do I need your help for, Peter? you got these 600 men and you're pulling out your penknife to defend you? If I wanted help, I get heaven to rescue me. I don't need you. You got things wrong. See? So he's basically reviewing, rebuking Peter. And he says, this isn't God's will. It's not God's will that we get out of this mess. It's God's will that I be arrested and die. This is part of the scriptures. This is part of that plan. See? So put your pen knife away, your sword away, your dagger away. And then verse 54. And he says, how then... Could the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must happen thus. If we fight our way out of this, or if I called 72,000 angels, verse 54, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? And the answer is what? They wouldn't be fulfilled. (laughs) That it must happen thus. This is the way it has to happen. This is God's plan, and this has been God's plan all along. Okay? So, now, Jesus turns and he speaks to the mob. He's finished speaking to Peter. Peter doesn't get it, by the way. I'm sure of that. In verse 55, In that hour, Jesus said to the multitude, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to take me? I sat, with, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple. You did not seize me. What are you doing here? Why are you doing this? I mean, I was in the temple in daylight. You didn't arrest me then. Why now? Why this time? And the reason is because this is his hour. And this is just the way it's supposed to happen. There has to be a betrayer from the scripture. That was prophesied. And this is the way it's supposed to happen. This is all in God's plan. Okay? And then in verse 56, he says, All of this was done. Watch. This is the proof. All of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is a key in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is following God's plan and he's not following man's plan. He's not even following his own plan. And this plan does not include overthrowing the Roman government. And that's what the disciples were hoping for. That's what all the people in Jerusalem who were looking for a Messiah were expecting. What a disappointment when Jesus says, no, I have to be arrested and die. They have to say, what have we done then? What what have we been wasting our time for for three years? And it has to be a major disappointment to them when they hear Jesus say that. So look what verse 56 says. Then all the disciples did what? They forsook him. And they fled. How did verse 31 open up? All of you will be made to stumble because of me, because it is written. And guess what? Here's the answer, verse 56. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him, and they fled. So, this was the right time, this was the right way, this was the right place, this is the way it was supposed to happen. 
and they didn't see it, and they didn't understand it, even though Jesus sent it to them, they still couldn't take his word on it. And so they are scandalized. They've been following a Messiah who ends up getting arrested. This can't be the Messiah, then can it? This must be some fake. And they are scandalized, and they decide to abandon Jesus, and they all run for their lives, and the mob doesn't even come after them. Because they're not after Jesus. They're after, I mean, they're not after the twelve, they're after Jesus. And um, there's just going to be sometimes we don't understand God's plans. And God has a certain plan, and He has a plan for your life. And you know, many of you said, when you started off, I have a five-year plan. Then you had a 10-year plan. And then you had a 20-year plan. And you had a... How many of you, when you started off and you graduated from high school or college or whatever, your life ended up the way you had planned it? <laughs> Not mine. God has a plan. And we need to follow God's plan. And he's got the right time for this event in your life, and he's got the right time in that event. He's got a, There's a time to get married. There's a time for birth. There's a time for death. It's all in God's plans. And so, when we pray, uh, we always say, God, if it's possible. And we know it's possible. But we also have to know that sometimes what we ask for is not God's will, it's our will. And when that happens, all we need to do is walk by faith. God has revealed to Jesus something very interesting. He's revealed to Jesus that he has to die. Jesus just hates that. <laughs> but he's revealed to Jesus that he's going to raise him from the dead. But before that happens, he has to die. That's a rough time to go through. But there's a promise there. And so what Jesus does is he just walks by faith and when he can't understand his father's mind, he trusts his heart. And that's what we're called to do. Walk by faith and be a follower of Jesus. Next week we see Jesus' trial uh, for the crime of insurrection. He is arrested as a political adversary of Rome. And he will die as a political uh, criminal. And so when they say that Pilate if you don't crucify this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Then you know Jesus has been arrested as a political insurrectionist. That's what he's arrested for, and that's why he's put to death. That's what man thinks. But God has him arrested and put to death that he might bring about the redemption of the world. That's God's plan. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that just reveals a lot about Jesus as a person, the apostles who walked with him for three years and were totally confused, disappointed, disappointed, depressed, without hope, and it reveals a lot about us. Here we see two pictures. We see those who forsake Jesus, those who betray Jesus, and we see Jesus who walks by faith. Oh Lord, help us to be a follower of Christ. May each step that we walk in the future be one of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.